Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is Nate Oman, Professor of Law at William and Mary Law School. Nate has written extensively about contract theory and law and religion, and he's the author of several articles and books, including The Dignity of Commerce, published in 2016 by the Chicago University Press. Today, we talk about his views and work on contract theory. Hi, Nate. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. This should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for accepting the invitation. Uh, I, I want to start with uh, your book on contract theory, uh, The Dignity of Commerce. It's uh, a book I, I found really interesting. When I wanted to ask you to tell our listeners a bit about the book. What is the main claim that you see the book as uh, making? The main claim that the book makes is a normative claim about the justification of contract law. Uh, and I argue that contract law should primarily be thought of as being justified because contracts help to support markets. And so then the question of the extent to which uh, contract law is justified to the extent that we're enthusiastic supporters of contract law or, or skeptical of contract law it is tied to our moral assessment of markets. Uh, and then I go on in the book to argue that markets are morally desirable, that they're valuable, um, but they're not valuable simply because they are sort of efficient allocators of resources in a kind of law and economics way, although that's often true. But they're just um, valuable moral practices that support a liberal democratic order. And here, what I was trying to sort of self-consciously do in the book was recover the 18th century do commerce tradition, going back to Montesquieu and Adam Smith. Um, and for those thinkers, uh, they saw markets as part of um, what was necessary to create um, what today we would call a liberal society. Uh, and so, my basic claim is. Contract law is valuable because it supports markets, and markets are valuable because they support a liberal democratic order. Great. Uh, uh, it would be interesting if you could say a bit more about the relationship between your view, which basically says contract law is justified or is valuable to the extent that the market is valuable or is justified. How, how is that view connected or how, how does it relate to the more dominant approach that thinks about contract law in terms of the market, which is kind of the standard economic view that sees contract laws maximizing welfare? Um, so I think the main difference would be uh, the way in which I think about what makes markets morally justifiable. So in the dominant economic um, paradigm, we like markets uh, because markets uh, efficiently allocate resources uh, in a ways that maximize welfare. Um, but what we mean by welfare here is um, uh, has very specific definitions right within uh, uh, economic theory. So what we mean by welfare is um, the satisfaction of revealed preferences. And so what we want is a system that just maximizes the satisfaction of revealed preferences. Um, so I would object to that um, moral stance uh, towards the market uh, for two reasons. So the first reason is that I don't buy this model of uh, human welfare. It's not clear to me uh, that people are necessarily better off Uh, in a morally relevant way, simply because uh, their revealed preferences are satisfied. Uh, so the easiest way to think about this would be uh, people might have like what we would uh, regard as uh, perverse or immoral preferences. Uh, so if I'm a psychopath and I delight in, you know, the uh, torture of children, um, the world doesn't become better in any sense, I would argue, uh, if that um, preference is satisfied. And it doesn't become better even if the preference in some weird way could be satisfied in some philosophical thought experiment without harming the children. I just don't think that a, a world in which um, everything is equal, but 
um, the preference for torturing children is is satisfied is in any sense a morally superior world to the world in which that um, preference is not satisfied. So I'm skeptical about uh, about mere preference satisfaction as a model of welfare. Uh, the other thing that I would be skeptical about is that I, I think that the focus on markets merely as engines for the satisfaction of revealed preferences misses a lot of what is um, normatively important about markets. Uh, so in, in the book, I argue that a sort of well-functioning market uh, uh, delivers uh, a number of, of uh, morally desirable outcomes. So one of those morally desirable outcomes is that I think markets sort of inculcate certain virtues that make liberal democratic societies possible um, or more effective. Uh, so the, the main one here is that uh, markets tend to force us to look at the world from, the, from someone else's point of view, because that's how you make money in a market, right, is I figure out what you want and how I can satisfy that. And that breeds a certain habit of mind of being able to look at the world detached from my own uh, point of view and looking at it uh, from someone else's point of view. So I think that assists with deliberation. I think also markets break down certain kinds of moral habits that can be destructive to liberal democracy. So really intense loyalties to family and tribe tend to be broken down by commerce. And oftentimes those loyalties are destructive of the kind of impersonal order that you need to make liberal democracy work. I mean, I could kind of go on at length. So I, I just think that there are things about the market that are morally desirable that are missed in the economic um, um, uh, view of the market. That said, um, I am um, I am actually not um, uh, dismissive in any way of the economic analysis of law. I think it tells us a lot about how markets function. And I think within certain domains, um, law and economics actually does a very good job of uh, telling us what kinds of, of rules we might want or what kinds of rules we might not want. Um, you know, in corporate law, I would probably be um, uh, in favor of rules that uh, try to uh, generate economic um, efficiency in terms of revealed preferences. So I think that the, that economic analysis works fine, um, but only when you're nesting it within a broader set of uh, moral commitments, rather than just drilling down and assuming that everything can be generated uh, by this very thin idea of welfare as uh, satisfaction of revealed preference. There's a lot that's interesting there. So let me ask you a couple of uh, follow-ups. So I'm going to start with the first one, which is, as you know, there are variations of uh, this idea that we should maximize social welfare or of uh, consequentialism more broadly, which is basically having this idea of maximization of whether it's happiness or more broadly good consequences or welfare or wealth, as in the more uh, popular versions of law and economics where you add constraints, right? So you say, let's maximize welfare with some deontological constraints, including that people have certain rights, including the right not to be tortured by someone else just because they derive some satisfaction from that action. Why isn't that sufficient to vindicate the standard economic view? So why is a view that says, let's maximize welfare and also with the limit that we should respect some basic rights, not sufficient to capture something valuable about the law of contracts, uh, why do we need to turn to this more moralized view of the market to see that that value? Um, so uh, it would depend on all of the, the sort of different versions of, of um, what a sort of constrained law and economics view would look like. Um, and at some level, I, I, I would be comfortable saying that my view is something like a constrained law and economics view, because I do think that um, uh, it may make sense uh, to just think about uh, certain issues in contract law in terms of economic uh, incentives. Um, I am not necessarily um, fully persuaded that you can um, sort of fix all of the possible normative objections that one might have to a sort of law and econ version of welfareism by adding deontological side constraints. So I think uh, here of, of the work of someone like A.L. Zamir. Um, so I'm, I'm sympathetic to that project. Where What I think it misses, right, is that um, 
uh, I think it misses what deontological theories miss. So here, if I am uh, skeptical of the traditional economic view because I'm somewhat skeptical of its notion of welfare, I'm also skeptical of traditional deontological views because I'm somewhat skeptical of uh, deontological moral um, uh, systems, or at least uh, deontological morality as uh, somehow the final or foundational uh, morality. Um, and the reason for that, right, is that I think that in order for us to have a sort of good uh, moral understanding of what markets are doing and what makes them morally desirable, uh, it's not enough for us to just think in terms of individual rights um, and making sure that individual rights don't get violated. So the problem that I would have with the welfareist view is not simply that it might lead to the violation of individual rights, although it clearly could. Uh, you could imagine that being a problem, right? And I'm not in favor of violating rights. Um, but um, I do think that our, our, our moral understanding has to be enriched by ideas other than simply welfare and rights uh, to make sense of um, what makes liberal uh, democratic societies valuable and what supports liberal democratic uh, uh, societies. So the, the first uh, example that I point to is what I was talking about earlier. This idea that um, moral habits are important. Uh, that um, it, part of, of normatively what we need to do in order to support um, liberal democratic societies is we need citizens that have a certain set of virtues, um, uh, a certain set of moral habits and how they uh, relate to other people. And I don't think that the idea of rights standing alone captures uh, that uh, sort of archaic or, or virtue-centered uh, set of moral concerns very effectively. And I think something like a kind of Smithian view of uh, commerce does that better than uh, sort of Jeremy Bentham constrained by Immanuel Kant. That's great. So would you characterize your view as something like consequentialist, but with a richer account of the valuable consequences of contract enforcement or the market, which, as you say, you see as uh, related? Yeah, I think that's probably um, a safe characterization. I have to say, I, I don't claim to necessarily have uh, any completely worked out uh, deep um, sort of system of meta-ethics or something like that. Um, that's above my pay grade. I'm just a lawyer. Um, uh, but I do uh, think that um, what makes contract law valuable is not that contract law somehow reflects um, some uh, pre-moral set of, uh, or sorry, pre-legal set of moral duties or something like that. Um, but I think contract law is valuable because it has certain consequences. Um, I just think the consequences that make it valuable um, have to be understood using a richer set of categories than just, um, you know, the maximization of revealed preference satisfaction. Great. The next follow-up I had is, how far should markets go? Uh, so you say there are all these good things that markets produce, but as you know, different political communities can decide to assign different spheres of life to the market or to restrict or expand the scope of the market in different ways, right? So there is this kind of old... Uh, literature on varieties of capitalism, right? And how different countries in the Western world had, have basically decided to adopt the market uh, as, uh, as a mechanism for distributing goods and services, but have restricted its operation to some degree or other in certain areas, like uh, in European welfare states, typically education, social security, and healthcare. So is your view kind of agnostic as to to what extent markets should reach? Or is it a more actively pro-market view that says, uh, basically, we should strive more towards the, you could say, American model, or though it's, uh, I'm sure you will say it's dysfunctional in all sorts of ways. But 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 to this idea that lots of spheres are, are properly governed by market rationality or by the 
ethos that you describe of the market. So, so in a sense, I'm, I'm asking, how does this relate to the literature, uh, particularly the libertarian literature that says basically markets shouldn't have any limits and we should expand uh, the logic of the market to all of these spheres that other countries in the Western world have decided should be governed by a different, different uh, logic? So um, my argument, I don't think is a libertarian argument. I mean, in my politics, I think I, I sort of tend to describe myself as a lapsed libertarian, right? I'm, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the value of markets. Um, but I, I don't think that the argument that I'm offering is ultimately a libertarian argument. Um, and I know liber there are libertarians who are uncomfortable um, uh, about it. Um, one of my favorite quips uh, after this book came out, I, I got was from uh, Marcus Cole, um, and at the risk of sort of speaking uh, for Marcus, who is a professor at Stanford and is now dean at Notre Dame, um, at the risk of speaking for him, I think Marcus would describe himself as basically libertarian. And he said, um, he, he read my book and he said, this is like my dream house that you've put in a neighborhood I wouldn't be caught dead in. Um, so why don't I think it's a libertarian theory? I don't think it's a libertarian theory because as I understand the libertarian defense of markets, the libertarians like markets because they see markets as the result of uh, consensual, non-coerced um, actions um, uh, and that don't um, involve the violation of anybody's uh, rights. Um, and so the reason that I uh, would not call my theory libertarian is I don't see the value of markets as being as arising from the fact that markets are non-coercive um, and are wholly voluntary. And so therefore, markets are a reflection of individual freedom and individual choice. I see the value of markets as being about the way in which markets create a particular kind of society and why it is that we might want to live in that particular kind of society. So that does mean is that I am very open to the idea that certain kinds of market processes are bad or undesirable because they would lead or create a kind of social context um, that that we don't like, that's undesirable in, in some way, right? A, a world in which... Um, you know, poor people don't have access to healthcare or something like that. Whereas I think if I was a sort of Robert Nozick uh, libertarian, I would say um, the outcome, the kind of uh, pattern that's created by markets isn't the important thing. The important thing is just did we get there through a series of uh, voluntary uh, transactions um, in, um, in a non-coercive uh, marketplace. And is provided that whatever destination we reach, we, re we reach by that route, then that destination is by definition justified. Um, and I don't believe that that's true. I think that we, we have to look at the kind of society that we live in and say, um, you know, is that the kind of society we want? So I'm not hostile to the idea of uh, limiting markets based on uh, broader social consequences. Now, how that gets cashed out in practice, right, involves us in a lot of really contingent empirical uh, debates about what sorts of institutional frameworks are going to work better than others um, in uh, generating the kinds of uh, outcomes that uh, we like. Um, and when we get down to that level of um, uh, empirical debate and institutional design, I suspect that I'm going to be a lot more pro-market than, um, um, you know, uh, folks to the political left of, of me uh, would be. Um, but I would see us as sort of um, carrying out those debates at a lower level of abstraction than the kind of uh, principled um, uh, defense of markets um, in terms of uh, individual uh, uncoerced choice. So in that sense, I'm a kind of unprincipled defender of, of market freedom. <laughs> right. So it seems to me you would both, I mean, you would reject the premise that the market is valuable because it reflects this uh, sphere of known non-coercive voluntary action by uh, free agents. Uh, and you're a bit more agnostic about the extent to which we should expand markets precisely because you're not committed to that premise. You're more committed to the view that 
it all depends on what consequences markets produce in any given society, in any given specific uh, sphere of uh, social life. Is that kind of the yeah, fair reconstruction? I think that is fair. Um, I, I would say I, I, I would hope that I, I can give a little bit more teeth uh, to the argument um, than just sort of saying I want a good society, right? Which is that I'm I'm committed to a liberal democratic order that takes uh, seriously the idea of kind of irreducible moral pluralism and how it is that we can create a society um, that can manage uh, that kind of moral pluralism um, in ways that aren't going to be, uh, that aren't going to lead to lots of destructive um, uh, or cruel behavior on the part of uh, the state or the government uh, or other actors uh, in society. Uh, so in, in a sense, um, I do not have uh, really huge ambitions uh, for politics. I, I want um, a, a, a sort of world of um, peaceful cooperation among people uh, who actually may have um, 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 irremediable um, or ineradicable um, uh, differences of opinion about ultimately what the best possible world um, would look like. Um, I, I, I'd want to say one other thing, right? And that is that if you look at the argument that I'm making in the book about contract law, it seems to me is that there are two issues uh, that the uh, theory that I'm putting forward um, raises. The first is an issue of legal theory. That is, how should I think about this legal institution of contract law? And my argument is, we should primarily evaluate it through the lens of supporting markets um, and supporting markets to the extent that we think markets are normatively desirable. Then there's a sort of broader, um, what we might think of as a political question, which is, how desirable do you think markets are? And it seems to me is that a lot of people might accept my legal claim without necessarily agreeing with all of my political claims. So you might be considerably less enthusiastic about markets than I am. Lots of people are, are, are thoughtful um, people are much less enthusiastic about markets than I am. Um, and you might still accept my basic claim about the nature of contract law. And what that means is you're just going to be less enthusiastic about contract law uh, than I am, right? You're gonna you're gonna be more enthusiastic about having contract uh, be the regime that governs less of social activity and more of the social activity being governed by other kinds of of legal um, institutions. Precisely because contract is is closely associated with markets, and you're just not as as enthusiastic about markets. And I actually think that this is what we deserve. We observe that if you look um, broadly speaking at sort of legal theorists. Those folks who are who are on the sort of farther to the political left on economic issues, who are more skeptical of markets, also tend to be more skeptical um, about uh, uh, the virtues of contract law and contractualizing various areas um, of life. And it seems to me is that that intuition is entirely consistent with my legal theory, right? And then the, me and that person are just going to have a disputes about how valuable uh, markets are, but we're going to basically agree about what contract law is about, or at least they should agree with me. So, so you would basically disagree with the strategy that people like uh, Hanok Dagan or Martin Hessling pursue, which is trying to show that actually contract law is at its core committed to this idea of egalitarian uh, justice or even distributive justice in Hessling's case. Uh, so that the center-left or even a socialist critic should actually embrace the morality of contract, you would say, no, the, the, the critic is actually right, and we shouldn't try to make contract something that it's not. It's, is that uh, a fair characterization? Uh, yeah, probably something like that. So what I would say, right, is to the extent that the critic of contract law is skeptical of contract law, precisely because that critic is very skeptical of markets and the critic is associating uh, contract law as is, is thinking about contract law as sort of a central um, um, part of the legal regime that supports markets. And because that critic is the, the sort of center left critic is um, uh, skeptical 
about the extent to which markets um, are governing swaths of our social life is therefore um, skeptical about the reach of contract. I think the skeptics right about about contract law theory there. I think that the I'd agree with the way in which the skeptic is thinking about contract law. I would probably disagree with the skeptic about how the skeptic is thinking about markets. Where I would disagree with someone like Kanak Dagan, right, is um, I don't think that um, contract law is primarily about um, autonomy and self-authorship. I don't think that the reason that we have contract law is because uh, we have this um, sort of fundamental commit, political commitment in our, our society, uh, or we should have a fundamental political commitment in our society um, to um, allowing everybody to um, um, uh, sort of get in touch with their inner autonomous chooser. Um, it's not clear to me that um, that um, particular model of what human beings are and how it is that human beings live a good life is correct. And I certainly think that it's deeply controversial uh, in the societies that we actually live in. And so um, what I would prefer in those societies is a sort of more modest version of liberal politics that isn't trying to uh, um, maximize personal autonomy or something like that, but is trying to provide a, a sort of decent modus vivendi between uh, people who have got uh, or could have very strong disagreements about the ultimate nature of the human person and what is um, uh, the best kind of life that a, that a, uh, the human person um, or human people ought to be uh, living. Um, and, and what I want is a politics that's a lot more agnostic on those kinds of questions than I think the sort of high autonomy theory of someone like Hanoktagons is. Great. I'll, I, I want to get come back to this issue of the type of liberalism that should uh, underlie contract theory, which, because I think it's very important. But uh, I want to go back to this idea of do commerce and the kind of civilizing consequences of market exchange. And I think at one point I was sympathetic to this view, which uh, you can see very clearly in your book, but you'll see it in people like uh, Deirdre McCloskey, right? Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about contemporary writers. Uh, uh, and you can see it all uh, in older writers, as you suggest. But I've always, I, I, even though I, I I feel a bit attracted to the idea. I, I often wonder if it gets the causal relationship backwards. So one way to think about history is to say, first come economic uh, structures and then come values, right? Which is kind of a Marxist view, right? Right. Um, but the more I think about it, the more I'm um, seduced by the opposite idea, which is an idea that... Uh, uh, Roger Scruton actually talks about somewhere, I don't remember where, which is the idea that culture comes before economics and before economic structures. And so it's not that markets foster cooperation and these uh, civic virtues that make uh, social life possible, but it's rather that these virtues, these sets of cultural norms and values make market exchange possible. So uh, I, I was wondering if, if uh, what do you think about that, that second type of view, whether you think there's maybe something more complicated than just a one, one direction type of uh, causal relationship going on? Um, so the short answer, right, is I don't think that there's, that there's a one direction, a unidirectional causal relationship, right? I, I think that... Um, uh, cultures uh, makes possible certain kinds of institutions and practices, and I think that certain kinds of institutions and practices shape uh, culture. So if I was um, offering a historical explanation, uh, which is, for example, this is what I think Deidre McCloskey is trying to do, at least in some of her work, is she wants to offer a story about like, how did we reach this world of, of modern uh, markets? Where did that come from? 
So if I want to tell a historical story, it might be really important for me to know which of these things came first, right? So was there a particular kind of cultural shift that happened and then markets became possible? Or were markets caused by some other thing, some Marxist deus ex machina like technology or um changes in the means of production or something. Um, and then that shift in um, uh, activity changed culture. Uh, and so for a historian, that'd be a really uh, important question. Uh, I'm not a historian. I don't know the answer to that question of historically, how did these things um, happen? Um, I think they were, I think there were lots of things that were happening simultaneous. If I'm constructing a normative theory, I, it seems to me is that I can construct a normative theory um, that is sort of epistemically more modest. I don't need to know if the chicken comes first or the egg comes first. It's enough for me to know, right, that you can't have chickens without eggs. Um, so what I would say, right, is that markets are valuable because markets well encourage certain kinds of uh, social habits and social outcomes. Now, I don't think it's the case that markets are sufficient to do that. I don't think, for example, that if we just have markets, we will um, um, ineluctably lead to liberal democracy, right? So this, I think, was, for example, part of the kind of conceit uh, about Western policy uh, toward China in the 1980s and 1990s, Right, which is that if we just foster markets in China, uh, that will lead inevitably to liberal democracy in China. And I think that that's probably naive. I don't think that markets necessary are uh, are a sufficient condition for us to get to a liberal democratic uh, order. I do suspect that they're necessary. Um, that you're not going to be able to get to a liberal democratic order uh, without um, widespread. Uh, well-functioning markets. And in order to have those widespread, well-functioning markets, uh, we need to have legal institutions that are going to back them up. And I think that that is enough for me to make the normative argument I want to make about um, uh, the, the way in which contract law is best justified without necessarily committing myself to a really strong um, causal uh, explanation. I will say, like, I tend to sort of be very wishy-washy on these things. When I read someone like Roger Scruton, who makes really strong uh, claims about culture, my uh, my sort of knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, you know, institutions and practices matter a lot, and you should think more about those sorts of things. Um, and when I read um, um, uh, some sort of Marxist uh, account, right, in which um, economic uh, relationships are primary and all of the culture is the superstructure about that uh, on top of that. Uh, then I think about someone like Deirdre McCloskey and I think, you know, certain kind of culture is really important to make, um, uh, to make those kinds of economic relationships even possible. Um, but I don't think as a legal theorist, I have to answer those questions. Um, I, I think I, I might have to answer those questions if I was you know, offering um, sort of cosmic history or something like that. But I, I don't, I'm not trying to do that. One more thing I wanted to ask you, somewhat related, I think, to this idea of the relationship between markets and culture is there is a way in which your ideas, I think, are can be connected. I, I, I mean, let me put it this way. I think there's a tension in your book. Uh, because at some points I read you as very optimistic and kind of part of, you could say, a trend or a tradition of optimism about Western institutions, including the market. So part of what you say sounds, doesn't just sound, it's actually influenced by people like Deirdre McCloskey, who is clearly an optimist about economic institutions and Western capitalism. Also a bit, uh, it, it reminds me a bit of people like Stephen Pinker and others who argue that uh, since markets became a central institution in Western societies, uh, standards of living, moral uh, norms, and everything else have basically improved dramatically and, and perhaps will continue to do so. But at the same time, when you want to argue that the virtues that the market produces are very modest, that they're not leading to kind of a utopian 
perfectionist liberal world, but simply allowing for peaceful coexistence between people whose worldviews are essentially incompatible. You sound a bit more pessimistic. You sound a bit more like McIntyre or, or uh, people like that who tend to be more pessimistic about the Western project, who tend to think the best that we can achieve in this kind of fallen world is you know, avoiding a life that will be nasty, brutish, and short. And everything more than that is asking too much of political and social institutions. So uh, am I right in perceiving this tension? Or am I just projecting uh, my own <laughs> my own confusions on uh, your work? No, I, I I think that's I think that is fair, and I and I and you may well be far too generous in labeling these as tensions rather than simply confusions. Um, I suppose that the way I I would think about it for myself, right, is that at the sort of medium level. Um, I'm pretty optimistic about Western institutions. Um, I I like liberal democracy. I like um, uh, well-functioning markets. I like late capitalism. Uh, I think that there's a lot to be said about uh, sort of liberal democratic market modernity that is really morally valuable and makes the lives of those living within that regime a lot better than the lives of those living within alternative um, uh, political arrangements. I am not, however, um, utopian, um, and I don't necessarily uh, uh, subscribe to um, really, really strong ideas about progress. So in the sort of long-term um, uh, um, Long term is the wrong way. Sort of at the at the deepest level, I'm quite a bit more pessimistic than someone like McCloskey or Steven Pinker is, and and then I think it would be fair, right? Is I'm I'm a lot more sympathetic to um, uh, people who uh, have a more modest uh, vision of what um, politics is like. Uh, or what we can do with uh, political uh, and social institutions. So I think it's fair. I think there's there's certainly some tension and some contradictions um, potentially in, in my thinking uh, there. In, in where I would think about this in terms of contract law, right, is I'm very enthusiastic about contracts as the support for market institutions. I am, however, concerned about the contractualization of areas of life, um, precisely in areas of life where I don't necessarily think that the injection of market um, um, habits into those areas of life uh, is a good idea. And so uh, therefore I'm skeptical about the extension of contract law into those areas of life. So the the place that I would think about this, um, uh, that I, I, I suspect this would show up more um, most um, vividly, right, is I'm fairly skeptical about the contractualization of family law. Um, so uh, I am not necessarily incredibly enthusiastic about the um, enforcement of, say, prenuptial agreements, um, precisely because it seems to me is that what the enforcement of those agreements does is it injects a kind of commercial activity into a sphere that's not really socially very commercial. And so there are lots of problems when people are kind of bargaining on the threshold of marriage in a situation where they expect the other person uh, is um, someone who loves them and cares about them, but they're actually in an adversarial bargaining position with one another. And so I'm not sure uh, I'm not convinced of the virtues of contractualizing that aspect of of our law. And that's why, at the very least, I think that the rules of contract of formation that you see in like the Uniform Premarital Obligations Act, which creates a whole bunch of hurdles to contract formation that aren't generally uh, present in contract law, I certainly would support all of those rules. Um, and I might even go um, uh, farther because I think oftentimes what we're doing there is uh, we're we're undermining a valuable 
kind of, of moral and, and practical space by injecting a certain kind of um, commercial values into that space. And that's something that I, I am concerned about. Um, whereas if you're just like a libertarian, I don't think you'd have any sorts of, of uh, concerns uh, with the enforcement of those agreements as long as people are, you know, a free adult, free and uncoerced adults who are making making those decisions. I want to connect the this more pessimist line of uh, thought um, with what you said earlier about Hanok Dagan. So you said Hanok Dagan has this view of contracts as securing the conditions for autonomy, understood in this very thick way as basically being the author of your own life and being able to choose between alternative valuable life projects and conceptions of the good. So basically seeing contract as a really central institution for realizing uh, political morality and the demands of justice, and in, in this particular case, the demands of personal autonomy or maximizing personal autonomy. And you said you, you think that's asking too much. You, you think that the justification of contract law has to be thinner. And you, in, in one writing, you framed this critique as coming out of a liberalism of fear. So can you tell a bit uh, about, about what this idea of liberalism fear means and what do you think it implies uh, or it, 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 what sort of conclusions it generates for contract theory? Yeah, so um, obviously I didn't make up the phrase liberalism of fear, right? That goes back to the famous edit, uh, essay by uh, Judith Schlar. Um, so her argument, right, is that liberal institutions and practices are fundamentally a response to uh, the problem of um, human suffering and, and political cruelty. So the reason that we want to have, the fundamental reason that we want to have um, individual rights that we can assert against one another and against the state um, and uh, equal um, uh, treatment and concern before the law is because in the absence of those political practices and institutions, um, people are exposed to really terrible uh, acts of uh, cruelty and uh, predation. So here, I think like she's right, certainly historically and descriptively, that oftentimes pol uh, pol politics and the state have been engines by which powerful people in society are able to indulge in um, uh, predation and cruelty against those in society that are weaker. Um, and so she says, look, when we're grounding liberal institutions, That's our fundamental, that's the fundamental problem that we're trying to, to solve. So that's, a, in, in many ways, kind of a deeply pessimistic view of politics, right? It kind of suggests that at best what we're trying to do is um, avoid um, wanton cruelty um, and, and predation. I, I'm not that dark or pessimistic. I, I think we can hope for more uh, from politics than that. Um, What I do think uh, is um, true, however, is that um, I think she's making an important point about um, the modesty of what our moral expectations should be from liberal politics, that our goal is not to generate some kind of a secular um, or political utopia or millennium. Um, in which our deepest sense of what it means to um, um, be a human being living a good life is realized through our politics. Um, the reason I don't think that that's what we should do is because I simply don't think that given the historical situation of um, contemporary society in liberal democracies, that we actually have that level of consensus about what is a, um, what is a good um, uh, life, what is, the, what is the highest and best kind of, of human life that people should be achieving. And so I don't think it's appropriate 
for us to structure our politics and our legal institutions around a really strong vision of what the best kind of human life is. And I take it that um, people who are offering, say, accounts of contract law or other legal institutions that rest on a kind of perfectionist liberalism, um, I take it that that's what they're offering, that they're suggesting that the life of the autonomous chooser uh, who is defining for themselves um, uh, both the nature of their identities and is defining for themselves the nature of the moral uh, universe that they're going to inhabit, that that chooser um, is the sort of primal um, and fundamental thing of what it means to be a human being and to pursue a, a good human life. It's not that I'm skeptical of autonomy or freedom of choice or anything like that. I think that all of, like, I think freedom of, of choice is an important part of people's lives. I'm a, generally opposed to a coercive state. I think we ought to create societies that give people lots of, of opportunities and options. Um, but I, I don't think fundamentally that we can ground um, a com commitment to those things in terms of um, um, a ultimate um, uh, commitment to the idea of uh, individuals as um, uh, um, creators, um, autonomous creators of their own identities and their own uh, moral universes. Um, I don't think that's actually true of human beings. I think much of our identity is unchosen. Um, and um, I don't necessarily think that the highest manifestation of our identity comes through uh, um, um, self-authorship. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I believe that that's true or coherent. But regardless of that, I just don't think that that's what everybody in our society thinks. Um, and so I, I just don't think it's appropriate to generate um, or, or build political institutions around uh, a really, really strong uh, conception of individual um, autonomy. Excellent. Um, we're running out of time. So I want to ask you a final question, which I think is a bit more autobiographical. So. Besides contract theory, you've also written a lot on law and religion, and you are yourself a religious person. And so uh, I'm curious as to how that those experiences, both as a scholar and as a person, shape or influence your view of contract law and theory and you know your, your connection between contract theory and the market and your uh, more, more anti-utopian view of uh, the justification of contract law? Uh, it's an interesting set of questions. Um, so I don't know. So maybe maybe my own religious beliefs are the problem and sources of my confusion. Um, so um, I, I think that one thing that um, uh, hopefully I think that religious faith can, can give people that can be of intellectually valuable, right, is... Um, I think it it can be a sort of um, it gives it can give you a certain distance from um, uh, the morality of um, of um, sort of um, high liberalism or high um, um, political morality, right? So if you are um, you know a, a pious Muslim or you're a Christian, or you, 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 you're deeply embedded in some other form of um, moral uh, beliefs that you think sort of provide um, the ultimate view on uh, reality. Then I think that gives you a distance from um, political morality. So I probably am uh, more attuned to the idea of deep moral conflict because. The range of what I would consider to be reasonable moral positions may well be a lot broader um, than someone who's um, not religious and is sort of much more um, comfortable in sort of secular liberal modernity than I am would be. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sort of willing to, to entertain the, the possibility of, of broader moral worlds. And so I think that makes me more 
uh, um, attuned to ideas about moral pluralism and probably a little bit more pessimistic about politics. It may also just mean that I am more likely to be conceptually confused. Um, in terms of the scholarship that I've done on law and, on, on law and religion, most of the work in law and religion, at least especially in the United States, tends to be about church-state issues and the First Amendment and you know, what did this, what is the Supreme Court going to say about the establishment clause or the free exercise clause this term, this term? Um, and I, I think those are interesting and clearly really important discussions. Um, but I, I wouldn't claim to be um, uh, someone uh, who's really a scholar of those sorts of, of questions, of church state questions. I'm much more interested in the question of how it is that religious believers and uh, religious traditions have thought about the law and how they make sense of uh, legal institutions uh, and legal practices. And historically and intellectually, what has been the uh, influence of religious ideas on our own legal tradition? Um, and so um, uh, I've been, I'm, I'm much more interested in questions about like, um, you know, how does Islamic law uh, what does Islamic law look like in the American uh, legal system? Uh, or um, how have religious institutions um, uh, dealt with uh, civil disputes about contracts or property or something like that? Um, so I'm very interested in those sorts of, of questions. And one of the things that I found is that there's actually a lot of, um, there's a lot of religious thought on private law questions um, which um, in in many ways are, I think, just because they're older than a lot of our public law questions, um, that there's a richer tradition of them. So people have been having, have had property and disputes about property for a lot longer than they've had disputes about, um, you know, political rights or the separation of powers or constitutional adjudication. So there's just a lot more religious thought on those kinds of questions. Um, and I've, I've found it just fascinating to study the ways in which different religious traditions have thought about, um, have thought about the kinds of topics uh, that I also uh, think about and, and write about uh, when I do private law theory. I, I'm, I'm not sure to what extent that's directly um, influenced what I've written about contract law theory other than um, um, I think it sort of broadens out your horizons a little bit and, and makes you realize that there's there's more in the history of, of human thought about contract law uh, than is dreamt of in the sort of intellectual space between Richard Posner and Charles Freed. Excellent. Well, Nate, thank you so much. This was a really interesting and rich conversation. Uh, and I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at uh, Nate's book, The Dignity of Commerce. Uh, and yeah, thanks again, Nate. Well, thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun.